from MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy, where the doctor's always in. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at UMMC. Thanks for joining us this morning on this crisp, fallish, winterish day in the South. Always great to come out here to MPB Studios, where it's nice and warm right now. Well, this is a show where you can call in with any kind of healthcare question that you might have about yourself or about someone in your family or maybe even your friends. We don't do animals, but certainly people questions are welcome. You can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can send us an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Good morning. Welcome to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. We are open today for business. That's right. This is the chance you get to ask a physician any kind of question you want today. We've got a full hour ahead for you, just for you. That's right. We don't really have an agenda on Wednesday's Southern Remedy program other than whatever your agenda is for calling. So if it's that question you had that the doctor talked to you about something, you just didn't quite understand it, maybe it's a new medication, maybe it's medication you're interested in if you have a chronic uh, medical problem, or maybe something that came up in the news, certainly a lot of uh, uh, spectacular things out there, maybe some uh, controversial things. I just heard about, uh, you know, the gene editing that's going on and, and gone on in China and uh, what that means, what are the implications for that. You can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, Or send us an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you got together with some friends or family, and I uh, hope you didn't eat too much. We ate, I think I set a new record for leftovers. Uh, so I think we we stretched leftovers out. The first four meals I had were the exact same thing that I had for lunch on Thursday. So the 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 following four meals, I guess I should say, were exactly the same. So I don't know what that means for my health, but um, it sure was good. It's a good time to uh, sort of reflect on uh, what we have to be thankful for. And uh, certainly uh, with a lot of controversy going on in the news in different areas, um, took that time to sort of be with family and enjoy that time together and hope you did too. I hope you didn't eat too much. You know, we're so... Uh, Mississippi in the South in particular, we are so tied to our food as part of our culture. Uh, it sort of dictates things for us. And there's lots of traditions that families have. And certainly uh, all those traditions, when they involve cooking, involve things that are really nice to eat, really taste really good. But usually they're packed with some pretty high calories in them. Um, just have to exercise some uh, some judgment in that and uh, try to not eat quite as much so you can eat uh, a lot more of things. But uh, we hope that you you weathered the uh, the eating storm with that and maybe got outside. It was beautiful weather, too, over the weekend. I hope you got out uh, from most places in the state, I think, had some great weather. Well, uh, gene editing is big in the news in China. If you haven't heard, there's a scientist in China that uh, was working sort of on his own. Uh, um, He was um, uh, at a university there, and and gene editing is something that he uh, is very interested in. However, uh, he was talking to uh, some patients, um, uh, some parents who were HIV positive, and um, wanted to edit 
their children before they're born. So in other words, they take an embryo, a fertilized uh, egg, um, and then um, take those and edit it, do some gene rearranging so that the children would not contract HIV from the parents. So that was sort of the gist of what he was doing. And it sounds pretty altruistic when you think about that. It sounds like the guy was really trying to help him out. And he had not just one family, but multiple families. It's just this this first family that have had twins now. And, um, you know, it's a, it's, um, it's a big deal. It has a lot of implications, though, when you start uh, messing around with the genome. And I think our first caller here, Jerry, from uh, Houston, Mississippi, uh, we've got uh, it has a question about that uh, about that news story. Jerry, are you there? Yeah, and and maybe you can help me. Maybe you can't. But uh, the CRISPR is that a procedure or uh, something that they put into the DNA to change it, or is it an actual gene? Yeah, my understanding is, and this is way above my pay grade, uh, but my understanding is that that is sort of the gene technique that they use. Uh, I'm not a geneticist, um, but uh, that's basically what they're doing is altering the receptor that HIV uh, sort of interacts with to infect cells. And there are um, a few individuals, this sort of, this comes off of research, uh, there are a few individuals who are immune to contracting or resistant, I guess I should say, to contracting HIV because of that. So they have a genetic abnormality. It's an abnormal part of the genome, but in this case, it uh, helps protect against contracting HIV. And that's what this researcher was trying to do, is to try to induce a similar or the same uh, mutation in a normal, healthy embryo, in a normal, healthy individual uh, and uh, and that's the part that that people are like, you know, that's that has a lot of implications, not just for those two twins that were born who appear to be healthy, you know, at this point. We don't know what changing that one gene is going to do for not just their lifetime, but for multiple of generations after them. So that once you change that that gene, it doesn't, uh, you know, and they reproduce if it's it depends on the gene, but. Basically, if you do that in all the cells of the body um, before, you know, when they're in this embryo stage, you, you don't really, uh, you can't go back and change that. So that's something that's there, and it's, it has the potential to be passed down to their offspring and their offspring and their offspring. It doesn't really go away yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah and that, that, that was my second question, but I guess a bigger part of that is is through gene mutation through uh subsequent generations, would it be possible for them to create a super virus that could attack people who don't have gene protection through the CRISPR? I would say there's a possibility for that. I think the bigger issue is what what is this going to do to those individuals and their offspring? You know, cancer is another one. I mean, if you induce mutations uh, in a, and again, a, a, you know, this would have been a normal, healthy person uh, that that has, you know, perfectly sort of run-of-the-mill normal genes. Everybody has mutations here or there. Um, now, this is different. You know, there's there's what's called somatic mutation, uh, which there's a lot of research, like muscular dystrophy is one of the areas of research in genetic engineering. After you're born and you have it and you're diagnosed, then there are a lot of potential uh, medical conditions that are good targets for gene therapy after you're born. That would not be something that you could pass down necessarily because it's it happens before, uh, I mean, excuse me, it happens after uh, those cells have differentiated and you're just really treating those cells that are affected. That's not something that you would pass down to somebody necessarily. So it's a little bit different, you know, because I, I do think we're going to see more of this regardless but there are huge ethical considerations, you know, for taking somebody that's potentially totally normal, that doesn't really have anything that's identified as abnormal, and then inducing a mutation to make them resistant to something or to change something. I mean, this really opens up a lot of areas where you could tamper around with the genome, and you just don't know what you're doing down the line. Okay, well, my brain's kind of smoking right now, so I better get off the phone. <laughs> I know it's some deep stuff. This uh, this borderlines into science fiction, right? So uh, that it does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thanks I think for. I've seen, 
I think I've seen a few episodes of Twilight Zone with this in it. You're right. You're right. Probably they did some time travel at some point. Uh, it really, if you want to understand gene therapy uh, and it doesn't directly deal with it, but Back to the Future, just watch all of them. And when you start tampering with the timeline, that's basically it. So thanks for calling, Jerry. We appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. This is Southern Remedy, the number today. If you'd like to call in with your question, maybe it's a little bit simpler this time than that one. That was a hard one. It's one eight seven. Seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or send us an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Uh, eugenics wars, man, that was in Star Trek, right? They, everybody remembers Khan. Uh, Star Trek Two. He's the reboot had Khan in it with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, I, I never can pronounce his last name. I think that's right though. Um, but uh, scary guy who was genetically engineered, and uh, that's what everybody sort of thinks of. But genetic therapy is going to be there in the future, uh, particularly for individuals that have what's called single-point mutations. So it's just one uh, gene mutation. Cystic fibrosis is a good example of that, although there's multiple, um, there's multiple mutations that you can have with cystic fibrosis. But if you know what the mutation is, if you do some genetic therapy to help um, – uh, you know, to help treat that in an individual, that's one thing. It's just when we're sort of engineering things is, uh, and, and people is another. So lots of, lots of stuff to think about. It's not your typical uh, medicine. Now, genetics is not something to be scared of. I mean, it's something that happens, and certainly there's a lot of um, uh, tailoring of different therapies. One of the big areas uh, in medicine right now is doing a genetic analysis of individuals to better understand what medications are more likely to uh, to work in that individual. Let's pick hypertension, for instance. So there we have uh, several different classes of medication, um, of hypertension medications. And for whatever reason, individuals, we have some things we know in, in certain populations that work better. So, for instance, African-Americans tend as, as a group to be more uh, to, uh, to um, uh, calcium channel blockers and thiazide diuretics tend to work a little bit better in that group. But within individual from individual, uh, it's really just trial and error is what it gets down to a lot of times. And uh, it seems very imprecise. What we'd love to do is to do some testing and say, you know what, an ACE inhibitor is going to work better in you or a, um, a thiazide diuretic and a calcium channel blocker, or maybe we need to use more uh, a higher dose or a lower dose depending on how well your body metabolizes that. We just don't have the resources to do that. Uh, but we're going to have more precise ways to do that to say, this individual genome, this individual set of enzymes that you have uh, for you, uh, with that kind of profile, this is what's going to work best for you. But, you know, we're probably at least 5, 10, maybe even 20 years away from that uh, before we have that kind of specificity with doing it. There's not, and if your doctor says that they can test and really pinpoint, most of the times they're blowing smoke. Uh, they, don't, they don't really have those resources yet. Um, but we've got good population data for most of the medications that we have, but um, hopefully we'll have some, some better ways to, uh, to look at that as time goes on. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. You can reach us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more time for your calls. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 
This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy on this cold, crisp morning, warming up a little bit with a nice bit of sunshine out there. That's what I like about the South, man. If, even if it's cold, if you've got a little bit of sunshine, you're going to do all right. You can reach us this morning with any of your health care questions at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464 or send an email to remedy at Online. Been talking about gene therapy. I know we're like just blowing up everybody's mind. Here's an example. Just found this in the news. Uh, Just so happened to pop up. This This is something else that's approved for children and adults with vision loss due to an inherited uh, degenerative condition of the retina. The retina is the back part of the eye that is sensitive to light and to images and allows us to see. Uh, This is called inherited retinal dystrophy um, caused by mutations in a copy of a gene called RPE65. Uh, So they don't have enough retinal cells with this gene to work properly. So basically, this is the first, this is approved in Europe, not quite prime time for the United States. But basically, it provides, the therapy provides a working copy of that gene to replace the mutated uh, gene. So it's a one-time therapy for each eye. It's injected beneath the retina. And um, that's that's something that's a potential treatment for that. The rare disorder, I mean, about 1 in 200,000 people are going to have that, uh, where they have both of those copies of the gene that's not working, and they just need one to improve their vision. So that's one example of some uh, gene therapy there. Let's go to uh, Hazel in Greenwood. Good morning, Hazel. Good morning. How are you? I am good. Thank you for calling. I had a question about the heart. Uh, sure. Uh why does it uh, sometimes flutter real fast, like uncontrollably off and on? Is that normal, or is it just uh, um, uh, uh, just uh, how it? How, why does it does that? Is it is anything? Does that mean anything wrong with the heart when it does that? Sure. Uh, how is this your heart that's doing that, Hazel? Yes, but I already went to the doctor and they gave me some um, some heart heart a heart pill, uh-huh. and it helped. It helped. And I was wanting to know who I didn't. I would guess I was so excited. I just didn't ask the doctor at the sure. time when I was there what caused the flutter real fast. Sure. So, so here's sort of an overview of of uh, that fluttering that you were feeling. So, the heart is a muscle, but it also has, if you think of it this way, electrical wires in it, and those electrical wires control how fast. And the coordination of the pumping of the upper two chambers, those are called the atria, and the lower two chambers called the ventricles. And it, it normally that is in a rhythm. And you think about, you know, sort of the lub-dub of the heartbeat, bump, 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 bump. That's, that's because of that electrical system telling those muscle cells to contract in rhythm. Now, to provide enough blood flow to the rest of your body, that uh, rate of the heartbeat, how fast or how slow it is, needs to change over time. So generally speaking, if you're sitting still, the heart rate should go lower. And if you're doing more activity, say you're up and you're, you're walking around or running around, the heart rate needs to be higher to pump blood to all the different tissues uh, so that they can get oxygen and all the nutrients that they need to work. Um, sometimes over time that that electrical system can have problems in it and um, that it can cause some of the fluttering or the fancy name for it is palpitations just feels like your heart's fluttering in your chest and um, that can be caused by a number of different things there are uh, and you may somebody might say you have an arrhythmia okay that just means that an arrhythmia is a abnormal rhythm of that heart rate so it's uh, it's it's think about it like a, a piece of music. So it's not a regular steady rhythm. It's a rhythm that sort of is syncopated. It it changes over time. Um, there are rhythms that aren't quite as as um, um, potentially bad on your heart or for your health. 
uh, that usually involve the upper chambers of the heart. There are things like atrial fibrillation. That's where you have a um, an abnormal um, electrical activity in the top two chambers, the atria. Uh, superventricular tachycardias are common as well. And then there's some other ones that are a little bit more uh, concerning that involve the lower two chambers of the heart. So uh, ventricular tachycardias and ventricular arrhythmias uh, can be a problem. There are a whole host of these things. Uh, uh, seeing your doctor, which you've already done and probably got an EKG, which is a, a heart tracing that, that demonstrates that sort of shows that electrical activity in your heart is the best thing to do. And they may even want you to see a specialist in this. So there are uh, electrophysiologists who are cardiologists that sort of specialize in this area. You mentioned a medication. I am going to, you know, there's different ones out there. There are beta blockers. There are other ones that help regulate that a little bit, depending on what the heart rhythm is. But that's that's one of the common things for that. And there are other things, too. I hope they they took the time to talk to you about things that might um, make this worse, like caffeine, lack of sleep, um, some certain medications that normally speed up your heart rate. Uh, sometimes you'll need to avoid these. But uh, this will be something that may go away. It may come back. You may have it from time to time. But when you have symptoms of that, you need to let your physician's office know. So... Really complicated area. There's a whole people that spend, uh, you know, a few years just learning about these types of arrhythmias and different things to treat them. But that's what it sounds like to me, Hazel. Send me on Bystolic. B-Y-S-T-O-L-I-C. Yep. is a beta blocker, and it's good to treat blood pressure. Sometimes it's used in the treatment of heart failure. Uh, and it's also used if you have these abnormal heart rhythms. So it hits a, a couple of different things. And you may see a lot of improvement with that if you haven't already. Right. Uh, it's, it's a small dose. She said I was a little trouble, so I only take a half of it. And uh, uh, she says my heart is all right. Good. Yeah, good. Yeah, just listen to you. One good thing about most people, not everybody, most people can feel that. And you, you, you described it perfectly, Hazel, with those fluttering sensations. Uh, but not everybody can. So they may notice that somebody else may notice that their heart rate uh, is, is pretty high. So glad you got some the treatment you needed. Thank you so much for your information. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. You have to have five on those with the today. Oh, thank you. All right. The, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy. The number to call this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Edmund, who's been patiently waiting in West Point. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for calling. I wanted to make a comment on the statement you just made about uh, physicians blowing smoke on pharmacogenomics. Um, well, just, well, not not all of them. I said you need to be careful with that if they're saying that they can they can determine all medications because it's in its infancy as a specialty. But go ahead, go ahead. Well, it's more than um, I just got back from a conference at Mayo, uh-huh. and they will not start a patient on an antidepressant at the Mayo Clinic right now without doing pharmacogenomics because they can determine with precision. Uh, what medication the patient will probably respond to and what medicines they won't respond to. Um, that also exists with HIV medicines. Uh, some uh, of the cancer chemotherapies can be prescribed in a precision way. So we're more than in our infancy. It's, it's just not very well known among physicians. Yeah, I'd agree with you. We actually have a partnership with Mayo, so I am well aware of that research there. But uh, my comments were, you know, down the line, we're going to see this probably for most things. But you're right. Uh, SSRIs and uh, antidepressants are a big area. HIV has been one for a long time. Chemotherapy, although it's not quite at the, it is at the genetic level for a lot of things. For instance, breast cancer, looking at receptor status, uh, HER2 oncogenes, a lot of different pinpoint ways to do that. Uh, In the routine things like diabetes, hypertension, not quite prime time, but they're working on it. So, yeah, if I if I totally Edmund, if I implied that that was not out there, I, that was not my implication. I think you're right. There's a lot of different areas where um, it's really being looked at more and more. 
Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that someone out there listening uh, didn't look askance at the suggestion that uh, pharmacogenomics be done in the appropriate situations, as long as they're done through a reputable lab. Sure, exactly, exactly. One, one other thing that's, you know, it, insurance, uh, it hasn't quite caught up to a lot of these, so you got to ask about that, too. Um, I, you know, counsel my patients who've done some of this, you know, make sure you check with that because you might have to foot the bill for that, and it's not cheap. So in a lot of instances, they'll pay for it, but in, in some, they won't. Well, my experience so far has been that they won't pay for anything. Yep. Um, but that's going to have to change, but it won't change until the studies are done that show a true clinical benefit from the exactly. from doing yep. genomic studies. So we're, we're in a gray zone there. But we're way out of infancy uh, uh, when it comes to uh, precision medicine. We, we should say toddler stage. Maybe, I, I wouldn't argue that. <laughs> All right, Edmund. Thanks for calling. I appreciate it. All right, let's go to David in Monticello. Good morning, David. Hey, Dr. Jimmy. Uh Thanks for your show. Y'all do a great service with all these shows on MPD. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, I, I had... Three days of, I guess you would call it, semi-extreme diarrhea. And uh, finally went to the doctor. He said I had something called H. pylori. Pylori, yeah, H. pylori. Mm -hmm. He he gave me a a load of antibiotics and omeprazole. Did he do some testing for that? He did a blood test. Yeah, okay. Oh, a blood test, okay. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I, I took all of those meds, and I, I also took a ton of Pepto-Bismol, like six a day. And I was fairly straightened out for like two weeks. And uh, I finished my all those meds, and like two days later, it's, it's, it's all back again, including some extreme nausea. But it only happened for like one day. And before I could get back to him... I kind of feel like I'm okay now. So <laughs> tell me about H. pylori. <laughs> so H. pylori is a uh, bacteria that likes to live in the stomach, in the GI tract, and it's most notorious for uh, for helping to sort of put you at increased risk for gastric ulcers and gastric bleeding. Um, it, it likes to hang out in the mucosa layer, um, and uh, it can tolerate high acid levels uh, and uh, can just sort of erode, help to erode the stomach lining. Uh, you need to treat this with a complex regimen, which usually involves a macrolide or a couple of other um, uh, antibiotics, but they're also in conjunction with things that decrease the acid level, and uh, sometimes you can use, there's a couple of different these re- of these regimens, and sometimes they come together, like there's one called a PrevPak. Now, diarrhea is not a typical symptom of H. pylori. So um, I, if it were me, you know, if you weren't having a whole lot of uh, gastritis, a lot of pain in your, in your epigastric region, I probably would not even have even tested. And the other thing to, to watch out for is the, the blood testing is not as accurate as the stool testing. Really, stool testing is, is probably the most accurate way of, of seeing if you have an active infection. Depending on what type of blood test that they check for, there's two Usually there's two uh, antibody tests that they use, an IgG and an IgM. One of those is that the IgG, if it's positive, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have an active infection right now. It just means that you had one in the past. Um, so it's not that helpful in, in you know treating it. It sounds like because of these symptoms sort of coming and going, I'm not too sure that that's what's causing your symptoms. I think it may be something else. Certainly, there's a lot of uh, viral infections, adenovirus, enteroviruses that can do this as well, that have the same type of symptoms. So, uh, you know, just based on the symptoms you had in the blood test, I'm not sure I would hang my hat on H. pylori being that. Now, I wouldn't fault anybody for, you know, for necessarily treating it just because they had the positive test result in some symptoms. But diarrhea is not usually a presenting symptom of H. pylori. It's usually the, the epigastric pain. Okay. Very interesting. I've never had this. and 
I just thought it was kind of fascinating. But yeah, yeah, it's out there. To get rid of it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, a lot of people, if they have the gastritis and they're treated once and they retest. And by the way, the the confirmatory test to that is actually doing a biopsy. So the you know a gastroenterologist would put a uh, an endoscope down into the stomach. They'd look in one of those ulcers. They would biopsy that, and then you can actually see the H. pylori in the tissue if they do the, the stains uh, in the lab. Um, so that's the the you know that's the confirmatory test from the stool. But um, you can be treated. You have to have retreatment sometimes. But it sounds to me that the symptoms don't really fit with that type of infection. Okay. Thank you, Doctor. All right, David. Thanks for calling. GI problems are frustrating. Man, they uh, they can do a number on you. This is Southern Remedy, the number to call this morning if you'd like to uh, call us with your questions about your health or the health of someone else, you can reach us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Craig in Biloxi. Good morning, Craig. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I was prescribed uh, oral antibiotics about a year ago, and, and I developed uh, severe diarrhea in, within a few days. I was wondering if I get pres- uh, pres- uh, antibiotics again, if they can give me injectables for intramuscular or something like that, and, and if they cause the same uh, digestive problems. Yeah, they can, um, Craig. So that's a – it's – you know, some people, there's a – there's a distinction between a side effect, and I know you didn't say this, but there's a distinction between a side effect uh, and an adverse reaction, so and an, an allergic reaction. So uh, a lot of people will say, well, I, if I have diarrhea with antibiotics, I'm allergic to them. It's not an allergic response. It is an adverse uh, response. Basically, what's happening is you've got a lot of good bacteria in your gut. And when you take an antibiotic, uh, particularly a broad-spectrum antibiotic, one that kills a lot of different things, you can wipe out those good bacteria. And then what happens is basically you get diarrhea with that. And uh, it can take some time to get over. There are several uh, serious complications where you have overgrowth of a, uh, of a um, certain bacteria. C. difficile, Clostridium difficile is one that's a bad actor, particularly in hospitalized patients. Um, your question about is it better to get an injectable antibiotic? Not really. Uh, what you want to do is you want to, number one, make sure you need antibiotics. Antibiotics are way overprescribed for, um, you know, for upper respiratory infections. Most of those, greater than 80%, tend to be, even if it's like the classic sinus infection uh, type symptoms, most of those tend to be viruses that have to sort of run their course. We know that antibiotics don't really work too well to treat those, and they can cause resistance uh, down the line, both with you and the general population. So avoiding antibiotics unless you absolutely have to have it is the is probably the best thing. And then if you're going to use them, use something that's appropriate to whatever the infection is and uh, is targeted, not a big, you know, in other words, we want a, a rifle to knock out this bacteria rather than a shotgun or a cannon uh, because that's going to wipe out those good bacteria. Even if you got the IV antibiotics, you can still have diarrhea with that. Uh, so it's not necessarily a, a better route because that's going to be absorbed in your system. Some of it's going to be in contact with those bacteria in your gut. Um, but, you know, we only have a few that you can give like an intramuscular injection. Most people use something called uh, uh, rocephin, uh, which is a cephalosporum. It, it is one of those broad spectrum cephalosporums. And you don't always need it. I know a lot of doctors out there will give this, you know, if, if you have symptoms, upper respiratory symptoms and so forth, they'll give a shot of it. Um, we have way too much, you know, uh, bacterial resistance uh, out there that, you know, you really need to be careful about that. But just switching to the IM isn't necessarily the best thing. Okay, yes, I had a dog bite, and, and they gave me a prescription for that. Uh, and, and I drank buttermilk for to uh, recolonize my uh bacteria and is there anything else or better than than that so there are there are some over-the-counter um, probiotics that you can get um, that and there's not really been any study of one working better than the other one buttermilk unless it has live bacteria in it which most of them to my knowledge don't is not 
probably not as good. Now, yogurt, live yogurt that has, um, you know, live bacteria in it, that can help sometimes. Uh, Bacid is another one that's out there. So there's a lot of probiotics that have these healthy um, um, bacteria that normally populate the gut that can help, you know, potentially decrease those symptoms. And certainly that's not going to, you know, as long as you check that out with your doctor, it's not going to hurt you to take that with it. Okay, even if you don't have symptoms from oral antibiotics, is it good? No, you can go ahead and take it. Yeah, go ahead and take it. Yeah, you can go ahead and take those things. And sometimes with kids, too, we'll, you know, if there are a couple that if we have to prescribe them, like recurrent otitis media, that's the ear infections uh, that kids sometimes get, we'll use something called augmentin, which that's a, a, you know, fairly... A fairly common side effect of diarrhea in kids, and I'll I'll advise families: Hey, if they're old enough and they can have yogurt, go ahead and give them yogurt, live live bacteria yogurt, even if before they have the symptoms. If you wait till you have the symptoms, you're really behind the ball. You need to go ahead and, and treat it up front. All right, that's it. All right, thanks, Craig. Thank you. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call this morning is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Chris in Olive Branch. Hey, how you doing, Doc? Good. Thanks for calling, Chris. Got a bucket ha- a bucket handle meniscus tear about eight years ago. Uh-huh. Um, they removed the meniscus. Um, now I've got some, uh, calcification, um, osteophyte, I think it's called. Yep. Those are like little outgrowths from the bone. Yeah. And it, man, I'm telling you, the older I get, uh, the, the more and more it hurts. And I, and the, and the ortho told me it, it was going to start hurting more and more. So I read online that they've got a new stem cell therapy. Tell me if that is applicable to the meniscus or is it still too far in its infancy as well? Um, I, I only know a little bit about that. Now I know there's a lot of, a lot of things that you can inject into the joint space that can, you know, sort of been touted to uh, replace the cartilage or regrow cartilage. It's really hard to do that. And when you have osteophytes there, I would think your best bet is, if they think that they can go in and shave off those osteophytes, if they're rubbing up against each other, that might help you symptomatically. You're probably down the line going to have to have you know a knee replacement at some point. Uh, once you remove that that uh, cushioning layer, that um, cartilage layer, you just don't have that. That is a it can be a slow progression towards that or a fast progression, but everybody's a little bit different. That's why your orthopedic surgeon is going to say when they when you ask them. Hey, when do you think I'm going to have a joint replacement? They they usually their answer is you'll know and you'll tell me. Uh, and some people get sort of offended by that. But what they're saying is when your symptoms get worse enough, uh, where you really in, and you lose your mobility, that's the point where you probably need to consider it. I'm not aware of any stem cell therapy right now. In theory, that works. That if you have stem cells that can grow into cartilage cells and deposit themselves along that joint line. But just having stem cells floating around in the joint space doesn't really work too well. Uh, cartilage yeah. is hard to grow because it's it it receives a lot of its nourishment from that synovium from the uh, synovial fluid. Um, it doesn't have a good blood supply, uh, so those those cart, uh, um, cartilage cells themselves are very hard to deal with. But once you take them off of that, and you got Osteophytes are are due to chronic inflammation at those sites, and once you remove that cushion, you really got a lot more. Um, you, you've got an abnormal pressure at different points on the bone, so that's in in basically what's happening to it. So I don't know. I, I, it's worth a try. It's probably going to be expensive. A lot of people are doing these injections like coxcomb injections and um, uh, taking things like chondroitin uh, sulfate, and they're not going to harm you necessarily other than, you know, just being invasive with uh, uh, joint space, but um, something something to ask about. Physical therapy is very useful. What we know is even if you're having pain, the more you move that joint, the better it's going to be long-term as far as mobility. Um, you don't want a joint that just stiffens up and doesn't move because even if you have a joint replacement, if you that, that is a difficult thing to deal with. Yeah. Oh, did we lose you, Chris? No. Uh, oh. I don't know. Did you? 
Well, it's sort of coming in and out. I, did that answer your question? Thank you, and all right. I think we, we're losing reception there. Thank you, Chris, for calling, and good luck to you on your on your knee. Knees are uh, difficult, and most of the time you can trace that back to an initial injury like that. Like he mentioned, he mentioned you sort of in passing that uh, bucket handle injury. So if you think about the cartilage layer there, and you just peeled it back, it's a each each cartilage the. Uh, Medial meniscus and lateral meniscus in the knee, they sort of form these C's. So there's two C's that sort of face each other, uh, the letter C. And a bucket handle injury is where you sort of peel off part of that so it looks like a bucket handle that sort of peeled off uh, due to an injury. And over time, you can develop some scar tissue around it and have the problems like Chris mentioned. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to join Lena from the Gulf Coast, who has a question for us. But we've got plenty of time for you to squeeze in a few questions. If you'd like to call us this morning, you can reach us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 We'll be right back after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy Stewart on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call one 877 MPB ring. That's one 672 7464 or you can email the show remedy at mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and you've tuned into the program where we try to answer all your questions that you have about your health. Uh, you can call us this morning at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. With anything, it doesn't have to be a particular topic. And if you miss us this morning and you have something that just pops in your mind, you still want to ask that question to us, you can email us at remedy at MPB online. We'll try to get back to you as quick as possible. Let's go to Lena, who's been patiently waiting from the Gulf Coast. Good morning, Lena. Thanks for calling. Thank you. I've been experiencing uh, a lot of gas after eating some uh, multigrain bread. Uh, I was wondering, uh, years ago, they used to, I, I heard something about bromated, bromided flour. Could this be the problem? It's probably the, the carbohydrates in there. Uh, so gas, there's two ways you can have gas. Um, one is if you gulp a lot of gas, but the majority, and there's only one way for that gas, or two ways for that gas to come back up. Either you burp it up or it comes out the other end. Uh, the other way, and this is the majority of the gas that we produce, uh, is by bacteria. So again, those bacteria, um, they populate the gut. They help us do things. They help produce a lot of the nutrients that we have. It's really a symbiotic relationship we have with all those bacteria. And they can, uh, depending on the foods that you give them to help break down, gas is one of the uh, the breakdown products of those. And uh I would guess, particularly with whole grains, you can see this, and it's just the the type of carbohydrates. Um, Fruits can do it too, but a lot of the things that have natural sugars in them, natural carbohydrates, you can see that. So I don't know that it's the the uh, uh, bromine-related or brominated um, um, flour in there, but I think it's probably more of the carbohydrates. Most people, I think what you've done is you've, you've started to identify just, you know, what are the things that are going to cause that gas. 
Things like GasX uh, and other products along the similar line, they can help a little bit. I honestly, if you can avoid, you know, the, the different foods, that's probably the best thing, or at least decrease the amount of it, and just know, you know, if I'm if I'm going to eat that. Uh, certainly, whole grain whole grains are great um, for your body. They can provide a lot of fiber. Um, and a lot of people will be sensitive to foods that they haven't eaten in a while. And I don't know that there's any science to that necessarily, but if you, you know, if you don't eat something and then all of a sudden a couple of months later you eat it, you may get it. Well, can I ask you something about, um, I'm 79 years old uh-huh. and I was, I just got my left shoulder. I have a detached muscle, detached tendon and a, and a tear in my rotator cuff. And because of my age, my doctor doesn't recommend surgery. Would cell stem injections help any? Probably not. Probably not. Surgery probably would be the the best thing if they can do that. Um, Now, I will say age alone is not, uh, you know, you're... 79 is not, you know, as old as it used to be. It's pretty young, actually. But my health is excellent. That was my comeback, that I have no high blood pressure, no diabetes, and I'm very, very healthy. So I haven't checked with another surgeon, so maybe I should do that. Yep, I think that's exactly what you need to do. You need to get a second opinion, and that's okay. You know, some surgeons don't feel as comfortable doing that, but 79 uh, is not that old. I mean, I've I've seen, uh, you know, 90-year-olds who are really healthy and active. Those are the two biggest things if you don't have a whole lot of – we call them comorbidities. If you don't have a whole lot of other medical conditions that are going to put you at risk for that surgery, that's a low risk surgery. Um, okay. You know, it's the shoulder shoulder surgery. You're in and out of the hospital pretty quick and into PT. It doesn't have some of the risks some of the other ones do. With uh, so it's a lower risk surgery. And if you don't have any health problems and are fairly active, otherwise, I I don't see any reason why that somebody couldn't do it. Okay, I've already already had my two knees replaced, so. Yeah, so there you go. So you're like I'm you've did woman. <laughs> Everything's going to be brand new. <laughs> well, thank you, Doctor Jimmy. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for that. Uh, thanks for those two questions. Thank you. Sir. Have a great day. You too. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Doctor Jimmy. You can reach us this morning. We got a little bit of time left for a few more questions, so don't feel like you've reached the total end of the hour. You can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. The Mediterranean diet, you've heard me talk about the Mediterranean diet both on this show and when I was on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens so much, but man, we're just learning so much more about this. So this is a diet that is high in um, in fruits and vegetables, unprocessed foods, raw is better, uh, less uncooked it is, the better it is. Uh, low in meats, but if, it, if they do have a little bit of meat, it's mostly fish uh, or chicken. Uh, I tell people, you know, if it swims or flies, that's probably better for you than if it's walking around most of the time. And then most of the fat sources with a Mediterranean diet are uh, from plant uh, oils. So that can either be uh, in the form of nuts or olive oil. So we know that this is a great diet to treat uh, and to prevent heart disease, to treat um, um, to treat high blood pressure, but also it's good for other things. And this was a study in Australia uh, looking at the Mediterranean diet as it affects uh, Alzheimer's disease. So they looked at a biomarker. This is something that they're checking in the bloodstream um, for um, Alzheimer's disease. That's uh, the main um, the main component that that is the problem that they find in the tissue in the brain. And they looked at seventy seven per- participants in this study. Uh, who were at risk for Alzheimer's disease. In other words, they had somebody in their family that uh, that had this, a strong predilection in their family. Uh, and those who ate uh, more of the Mediterranean diet were less likely to develop Alzheimer's. And in particular, the high fruit intake was significantly linked to less accumulation of the amyloid uh, beta. Uh, so that's, uh, and it was really strong findings in this too. So just another thing out there that's, uh, that's beneficial for eating uh, the Mediterranean diet. It is t- something that's totally safe. There may be a few exceptions. You can, if you do, you know, Mediterranean diet can be so varied though with what you do with it um, and, and how you eat it. Um, it's always interesting to see something else that it helps protect against. And people have tried to tease out different individual components over the years, and it really doesn't work. There's just something about it being together like that.
All right, let's go to Hattiesburg, where Jimmy's on the line. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a question. Um, I'm a, I've served 22 years on active duty uh-huh. in the Army. And I one night on maneuvers, I fell sideways, and something popped in my ankle. Uh-huh. And they MRI'd it, X-rayed it. They didn't see nothing. No, they didn't do an MRI, I'm sorry. They X-rayed it, and they considered it to be an ankle sprain, but I had problems with it all the way to 2009. It kept giving away, causing me to fall. And in 2009, it gave away at work, and something popped in my right knee. Hmm. I went to the doctor, and they said it was possibly a meniscus problem, and I let them do surgery, and they said one of the meniscus had a problem. Uh, eventually, I kept having problems. Ankle kept giving away. Eventually, the VA did a MRI of my ankle and found I had a huge osteochondrial defect in the polydome, um, osteochondrial defect in the navicular bone, sinusitis, both torn ligaments, and an OCD on the tibial platform. Mm-hmm. And my question is, um, with the problem with my ankle, did it possibly make a problem with my knee also? Sure. You know, in the same leg, if you have a problem with the knee, the hip, or the ankle, it can affect the other joints just because, and sometimes in the opposite leg, uh, just because you're changing the way that you walk and you're putting stress in an unnatural manner on those other joints. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes they go together with that. It's not too unsurprising. Uh, it may be totally separate, but a lot of times uh, you, there's no way to really you know, to prove it completely about that. But that's that's a possibility just because of the way those joints interact with one another. So it, it could be all related. Okay. they've In the past, they did this stem cell injection in that ankle. They've, they've treated it for years. And now, Friday, I'm supposed to go to a ankle specialist. And um, my, my question is, I'm 63 years old, and... Um, Previously, they told me they had the surgery that they would do. They couldn't do the little orthoscopic surgery. They mm-hmm. would have to replace the cut ankle, it, cut it open. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's uh, a that's a that's something you want to ask. A couple things. We're down to the wire, so I'm gonna give you the skinny on that. Basically, ask how many surgeries that surgeon has done, and make sure he's experienced about it, and then wait as long as you can to have it done. So if you're already at that point with your pain and not a whole lot of mobility, it may be time, but uh, make sure they're experienced more than anything else. That's that's the bottom line on that, Jimmy. All right, thanks to all our callers. Uh, always a pleasure talking to you. You certainly make the show great with all the questions that you pose. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from you, our listeners. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. Our call screener was Kevin Farrell. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. You can reach us every Wednesday at 11 on Southern Remedy. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.